Okay, um, why don't you guys open up to the book of Galatians, um, Galatians chapter 6, I'll catch you guys up to speed. So what we've been doing, kind of start off with a little bit of a preface. Um, in short, uh, Paul, in this great letter, has been communicating to the believers to whom he's writing to, saying that uh, if you're a Christian, uh, what that means is that God has come in and he's taken up residence in your heart. In other words, God does not reside in the temple, in some sort of city, in some sort of building, with some sort of ornate fashion attributed to it or designed around it, but that God actually has taken up residence within the hearts and the lives of human beings, people like you and I. That's where God resides. That's where God lives. And so we're being built together as something that God's going to describe as a church, as a community, as a faith community. Now, what that means is that being a part of this faith community, that we are going to have difficulties and hardships. And I think one of the greatest examples to me that I look at the Bible, and I would have to just look at it and say, this book has to be absolutely truth. I mean, the Bible is so practical. It's not just merely giving out some sorts of philosophical statements or pithy ideas to somehow live by or attain, or attain to. Uh, the Bible is very practical. It's going to tell you that if you're a Christian, you're a sinner, but you're saved. That you are more wicked than you can ever even dare to imagine, but at the same time, simultaneously, you are more loved than you can ever even comprehend. So simultaneously, you're wicked and incredibly loved. That's the gospel. And you're brought into a community of people who are just like you, just as wicked as you, just as loved as you. And within this community, you'll have difficulties. I mean, you'll have hardships. You'll butt heads. You'll step on each other's toes. You'll get in fights. You'll wound each other. And yet God will use this as a means to prepare and restore and bring about his kingdom. That's what he does. And so what Paul's going to write about tonight that we'll be taking a look at is in chapter 6, is, uh, there's kind of a series of almost bullet points that Paul finishes with. So we've been going through this great book for, I don't know, 30 weeks or so now. And so we finally come to sort of the conclusion of all of this, and Paul's going to be giving some summary statements. But they're not disjointed from the remainder of the book. In fact, they sort of flow with the remainder of the book. So in other words, what Paul really wants us to understand is that the gospel, that even though it affects us in a spiritual spiritual way, even though it affects us in a way where our lives are changed and transformed, the gospel is actually also going to help us to live in this world, to live in this life, interacting with people that oftentimes we might not get along with very well. So it's going to be very pragmatic and helping us to navigate relationships and things of that nature within this life. I think that's great. So this is what Paul's going to say. I want to read a handful of passages, and then uh, we'll get to work tonight and try to uh, bring some sense to what we're going to be talking about here. So I want to read uh, around verse 1. I'm probably going to go down about verse 10, just so you guys can catch a little bit of the flavor of what I'm talking about. All these sort of, uh, it would almost seem to be kind of disjointed, random thoughts, but there is some sort of unity altogether in this. And the unity really is the fact that the gospel is not just some sort of ethereal statements that you live by, but it's very practical. It allows you, it helps you, enables you to actually live in this life with real people, with real problems, with real messes, and learning how to actually be a real person in the middle of all that. So, first one says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have, his own, will, for each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must also share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap with his flesh or reap from his flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing well. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those that are of the household of faith. And so I want to basically really jump into this larger context of what Paul's going to be looking. I'll straight up say we're not going to get that far into what we read tonight. In fact, we'll basically just look at one verse. We'll just look at verse one tonight. And the reason for that is because each one of these uh, verses that we read, even though they're sort of individual concepts, they're pretty meaty. They're pretty beefy. And I want to make sure that we don't just simply jump over them or skip over them without really trying to give some thought to them. So the first one's really significant because it really has to do with the very practical uh, reality of how do we deal with other people that are caught in sin? How do we deal with other people that are hurting, that are stuck, that are trapped? Um, and this is a big issue. This is a big issue because the reality, we deal with this type of stuff all the time. I'll give you the perfect example. The past four days, five days, week or so, uh, the headlines in California newspapers is all about Schwarzenegger and his indiscretion. And it's just, it's, it's amazing how the world loves this type of stuff and especially all the gossip circles love to take this type of stuff and put their spin on it and all these other types of things. And the world's way of oftentimes dealing with the indiscretions or the sins or transgressions or trappings of other people is to exploit them, to step on them. And this is their opportunity because it's like as soon as you've got dirt or I've got dirt on you, now I can exploit the dirt on you in order to lift myself up, to make myself feel better about who I am. We love this sort of comparing game. Some of us are really devious with regards to this because we, we love finding the dirt in other people because the more we exploit it, the more we're able to actually look at ourselves and be like, huh, I'm not that bad. I mean, that guy's bad. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. And we, we sort of take a little bit of a delight in that game. It's one of the reasons why you guys, some of you choose friends the, way, the friends that you do. Because you're like, I'll find friends that are worse than me so I can feel better about myself. Right? You're like, you're like I like to drink, but I like to get guys that just get drunk all the time. Because then I don't feel so bad about my issues. Alright? That's the way we oftentimes work. And, and what Paul's going to say is that the Bible... And the gospel, the way it works out in our lives, should cause us, should lead us to a different way to live. Well, rather than exploiting uh, the problems or the indiscretions or the transgressions of other people, we figure out ways to conceal them. Not to cover them up to the point of hiding things rather than dealing with sin the way it needs to be dealt with, but, the, but to the point of saying, how do we deal with sin in a way that is not going to be lethal and that's not going to be part of the same problem. In other words, it will actually lead to someone's freedom. That's the point. That's the point. How do we deal with sin in a very pragmatic way within a situation? So before we jump in, I want to basically just stem 
and, and kind of point out at least two different inferences that Paul's going to assume in the text. The reason why I want to kind of point these out is because it's possible for us to read our Bibles. I think we have this tendency when we read, when we read our Bibles, especially when we read read them kind of fast, um, we can sort of gloss over certain assumptions there and not really feel the weightiness of them. Uh, we can read them from a culture in which we're in right now, and we all have our own specific cultural way by which we read things, and we miss sometimes things that are very obvious to those in the first century who would have read them. So the first inference that I would point out is that the Bible is going to basically point out to us that being a Christian means that we're actually part of a family. This might seem kind of second nature. You're like, well, of course. What else is it going to assume? I think this is important because we have sort of created over the past, I don't know, 100 years maybe, not even, maybe, even, not, maybe not even that. Um, what has happened over the, uh, over the past 100 years or so, in a lot of ways, Christianity has become very impersonal. And so a way to really try to bring a person back into the real relational aspect whereby it's you and Jesus. We've created language that sort of reflects that in our culture. We say things like this, everything's about my personal relationship with Jesus. I really just want to kind of let the cat out of the bag. The reality is that's not even a biblical concept. You won't find a verse that says, how's your personal relationship with Jesus? It doesn't exist. Now, that does not mean that there is not a personal element whereby we interact with God, we interface with God. Here's what I mean. You as an individual human being, you need to figure out your relationship with God. You need to figure out, will you obey God? Will you honor God? Will you trust him? Will you place your confidence in him? Will you follow him or will you deny him? You need to figure that out on a personal level. So there is a personal element within this. It's not less than a personal element, but it's far more than just simply a mere personal element. Here's what I mean. The Bible's going to tell us that we are actually saved, not just merely as individuals, where we are saved as that, but we're far more saved into a larger whole, or what the Bible's going to describe as a faith community, or the Bible even uses the language as a church. You're saved into a church. When you read verses in the New Testament that talks about Paul writing to you, and you see phrases like you and whatnot, oftentimes we personalize those. We're like, oh, this is Paul writing to me. What you need to understand is that most of the cases and instances in the New Testament, when people would read these little books, we call epistles, they would read them in someone's living room or some sort of gathering where all the saints would gather around and listen to these books being read. So it wasn't just an individual sitting on a rock somewhere out in the desert being like, Lord Jesus, this is all just to me. It has implications on a personal level, but it's directly written to a group. It's really important to note this because the problem is, is if all we simply do is we strip Christianity down to a merely, you know, what are you doing with Jesus on an individual basis, then we lose sight of the fact that the church is what we're saved into. That the church is not just merely an, an add-on, an option that we can choose or we can neglect. It is the element by which we're saved into. It's not an optional thing. We're saved into it. Jesus came not to just merely save an individual, but to save a body, a church, a community. That he saved us as individuals into that. That's really difficult for us as a Western group of people to even understand because our culture is very individualistic. It's the way we operate. 
Everything is about have it your way. You deserve a break today. This is about you, how you want to live, the way you want to live, what's best for you. And it is reflected and carried into the way that we even think about Christianity. But what I'm trying to say is that if all you simply do is think of Christianity and reduce it to nothing more than your personal relationship with Jesus, then you are not moving in the fullness of what the Bible is going to describe it as. And in fact, you may even have unbiblical perspectives about the way the Bible is going to describe your relationship with Jesus. So, first and foremost, the Bible is going to assume that we are brought into a family. And so, you'll see Paul kind of talk about this type of stuff, because in verse 1, he's going to say, this family, he's going to talk about how we interact with those that are stuck in sin. Uh, Verse 2, he's going to talk about how we interact with those that are burdened by life's difficulties. Verses 3 through 5, he's going to talk about how we interact with our peers. Uh, There are other passages in the New Testament, Ephesians, he talks about, you know, loving one another, forgiving one another. There's only one way that we can love one another and forgive one another is if we're part of a group, part of a family, part of a church. That's the way it works out. The second inference is this, is that being Christian means that we will receive wounds and healing from this family. This is really important because what you need to understand is that this group of people gathered together by Jesus called the church are still sinners. They're forgiven, they're washed, they're incredibly loved, but we still sin. This is why the great uh, leader of the Reformation, guy by the name uh, Martin Luther said, uh, something in Latin, it's a uses et peccator, which basically is another way of saying in English, simultaneously, I'm both uh, a sinner and I'm justified. At the same time, same time. If you're a Christian, you need to understand this about who you are in nature. Simultaneously, you are both washed and cleansed and received by God, but at the same time, you are a sinner. So here's the deal. Once you get a handful of sinners together, someone's going to wound somebody. Someone's going to step on somebody's toes. Someone will sin against somebody. Someone will hurt somebody. It will happen. It's a guarantee. You're like, it hasn't happened to me yet. Cheer up. I guarantee it will. All right? Stick around long enough. It will happen. Okay, this is really important. Here's why. Because part of God's plan is to also bring about healing from those wounds within the same context of the Christian community. The reason why all that I'm saying, trying to infer all of these passages, is really important is this. Because so much of our culture is lined up with this mentality where it's about the individual. And we think this way. That if I as an individual don't like the group I'm hanging out with, or I don't like the person that I'm married to, that's okay. There's a lot of other more beautiful women out there I can trade my wife in for, for another person. Or if the church you're going to ain't working out, the lights are too low. The pastor's got a bad haircut. Whatever the case is, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the size or the depth of the excuse. doesn't matter. There's a lot of other churches we can just trade it out for and go for it, and that's fine. What happens is we become consumers. Individualism leads to consumerism. Consumerism leads me to the shallowness whereby I have no desire to repair a broken relationship. Why should I? Let's go get five more. If those, once they break, I'll get another one. I'll just trade them in for five more. And what you guys need to understand is this is the way our culture works. It's not biblical. It's not godly. And it's certainly not the way God works. Okay? You guys got to hear this. Because some of you guys uh, are coming into Christianity, you're learning what Jesus is. Some of you are young Christians, and we are the products of our culture. We are the products of what we live in. 
And the tendency is for us is to just simply live according to that context of the culture in which we live in. And therefore, we don't live to the depth of the experience that God wants us to live within the church, within Jesus Christ, within the depth of learning what it means to forgive each other, learning what it means to deal with each other's difficulties, learning what it means to heal from our wounds that may have been inflicted upon us by other believers, learning how to deal with these things. I know our culture says, run, leave, divorce. God says, no, here's what I did. You offended me. You wounded me. Because our typical mentality is like, look, why would I want to try to go seek restoration and seek healing? They wounded me. God says, um, that's what I did with you. You were an offense to me. And I tracked you down. I sought you. I brought you back to myself. You're like, why would I want to seek restoration with them? They're heretics. God's like, uh, can I remind you? You once also were a heretic, and I love you. You see, this is how it works out. See, at the end of the day, we still have this mentality. You become a Christian. You're like, I really want to be like Jesus. I really want to be like Jesus. And yet God's like, okay, let's, lesson one. Let's forgive the person that wounded you. You're like, no, I want to run from the person that wounded me. And Jesus is like, I thought you wanted to be like me. That's how it works. You've got to learn. If you want to be like me, then you've got to be willing to forgive people that I forgive these are people that wound me. These are people that have hurt me. These are people that have been set at enmity against me. This is how it works. So those are the two inferences I want to jump out and really try to lay down very clear, make sure that we really understand this, that one, we're part of the family. Two, this family will both wound us and will also be the way by which we find our healing. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's going to write this. Uh, it's kind of an intense book. Paul is, First uh, Corinthians actually rebukes this group of people for a number of different things. Um, and then this second book, Paul really is not certain how these people are going to respond. So in his mind, he's really unsure. Do these people hate me? Have they written me off? Uh, what, what are their feelings about me? And so Paul's kind of writing back to them. And Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 7, he says this, But when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. We were fighting without and within. We had great fear. Verse 6, Paul goes on to say, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. I love this. Paul's like, look, man, we were stressed. We were exhausted. Our hearts were just burdened. Our lives were ready to just throw in the towel. We were constantly in fear. We, that translates into, I couldn't sleep at night. I had insomnia. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, freaked out, stressed out, didn't know where my food was going to come from. This was my life. It was close to, as close to a hell that I will ever get near to on this planet. And Paul says, but you know what? God radically comforted me because he sent me one of the members of the church. And it took care of me. He loved me. He bound up my wounds. He helped me. He offered food to me. He told me great stories. This is one of the reasons why, guys, it is so important for us to be in smaller groups of community, to be connected with other people, loving other people, serving other people, pouring ourselves out to other people. And if you live in the typical routine where all you think about is yourself and all you cater to is yourself, then you are living not to the full depth by which God wants for you to enjoy. And you may even be short-circuiting the depth of relationship that Jesus wants to press you on into by merely excluding yourself from the community that not only wounds, but also brings about oftentimes the basis for healing. Okay? 
So, the issue that's in the heart of Paul in verse 1, chapter 6, is when somebody falls into sin. Because in this community, like I said, you get a group of people together that are all sinners. They're justified. They're forgiven by God. They're loved by God. But they get together, they still sin. They still, you know, bum each other out. They still hurt each other's feelings. They still say things they should be taken back. They still need to somehow repent from various things that are offending and hurting other people. So Paul's going to say, in this community of faith where you will be prone to wound each other and heal each other, here's how you deal with somebody that is in a situation where they're sinning. Here's how you deal with it. And uh, you might be surprised the way that Paul's going to identify this and deal with this. But what I want to do right now is I want to basically look at five different ways by which Paul is going to identify this. And uh, you might think that kind of talking about this issue of restoration, I might start with kind of a definition of what restoration is. I'm going to hold off on a definition to the end uh, for at least two reasons. One, because I think the definition which, which most of us may have in our minds about restoration is legitimate enough to at least get us through what we're going to be looking at. Secondly, the reason why I'm going to hold off until the end is because understanding this sort of definition of what restoration is will actually lead us in hopefully to kind of doing something with this. How do we deal with this on a very practical level? So with that being said, I want to kind of ask this question or a series of questions, first of which is who really is to be restored? Who are the people to whom Paul is going to be talking about that need to be restored? It's a really important question because sometimes I think Christians have this tendency to be like, well, the people need to be restored and be told off or the whole world, man. We need to tell everybody who's out there sinning, doing bad stuff, promoting illegal, nasty stuff that's offensive to me, I need to tell them off. Paul's going to start off by saying, no, brothers. It's brothers. He's talking to Christians. He's like, Christians. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you're in Christ, you have an obligation to one another, to other brothers, to tell them about various elements of sin and transgression. Now this is really important because the Bible's going to tell us that by and large, on the most part, when we talk about confronting sin, the Bible, for the most part, is going to tell us that the sin that needs to be confronted first and foremost is within the household of faith, first of all. That rarely, and on rare occasions, is a believer to go out and to confront non-believers about issues of immorality. This is really important because sometimes some Christians in this culture are very confused. How do we deal with all this onslaught of sin and wickedness? Now, let me, let me say this. I don't have a lot of time to kind of go into this. This doesn't mean that we don't use legislation and the means and the vehicles by which we have available to us in a culture, in our country, to somehow vote, exercise our right to vote, exercise our right to kind of rally together and try to turn the tides of various levels of immorality. Trust me, there's a lot of levels of immorality that we need to try to figure out ways to try to push back. But that's different than simply pulling people aside that are on the street, that are not Christians, and rebuking them because of the sin that they're doing. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. One of my favorite preachers is a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to what he said. Christianity is not primarily a teaching or a philosophy or even a way of life. <laughs> it's kind of funny to even hear that because so oftentimes you get this idea that people want for you to understand that Christianity is about, it's a good book to help you how to live. You read the Bible, it's a good book, it's sort of the road, it's a road map to life. It's a road map to living. The reality is, the Bible's not that great of a roadmap to life in everything. I'll give you an example. 
When I was around 19 years old, fell in love with this girl named Sherry that ended up becoming my wife, and I was trying to figure out, should I get married? I was reading my Bible. Nowhere, in, anywhere in the scripture was there a verse that said, Mary Sherry, all right? Not even in the concordance. Nowhere. Nothing to indicate, to imply, this is the girl you need to marry. There's no light that shone down from heaven that says, this is her. I didn't hear angels. It was just very natural. God did something in my heart to show me. I got married when I was 20, all right? But beyond that, the reality is, the point that I'm trying to make is that the Bible, for the most part, we look at it and just say, well, we trust the Bible, read the Bible, because the Bible will be the roadmap for everything for us in our life. Have you ever thought that maybe the Bible is not intended to be a roadmap for you, but really is a book about God? It's a book about God's story primarily. Uh, your name's not even in it. Unless you had parents that named you after a biblical name, and it's not even you. It's not about you. It's about God. It's a story about God. So here's what Lloyd-Jones is trying to say. Christianity is not primarily teaching or philosophy or even a way of life. It is before everything else a relationship to a person. The New Testament, in a sense, will not even discuss how we're going to live until we've come to the satisfactory answer about him. Before we can discuss how to live, we have, uh, what have we made of him, is the question that basically he's asking. The real issue is what are we doing with Jesus? We can walk up to people on the street who are in sin and be like, why do you sin? Stop sinning. The main primary issue is, what about Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Jesus needs to be the main central person to whom we point people to. Let me tell you why. Because if we don't, then all we simply do is we preach a moralism. It's all we do. We tell people, here's how to be a better person. All right? You don't want to die in drugs. You don't want to be a drug addict, do you? Nobody likes druggies. So just trust Jesus and you can be loving. And you'll be forgiving. To be honest with you, if someone came to me with that line, and if I was on the street, strung out, I'd flip. I wouldn't want Christianity. I don't want another new type of moralism governing, leading, guiding my life. I want freedom. I don't want to be sucked into some sort of new group that's got even more strict rules over me. The point that I would make is this, is that Christianity is not primarily about what you do for God, how you live for God. It's primarily about what God has done for you and as a broader whole has done and is doing for the cosmos, which is out of order, in order to bring about restoration to all things so that he would be glorified, so that those who trust and have confidence in him and his solution would find deep joy. That's what God's doing. So when we approach people, and all we simply do, for example, that are not Christians, and we drive home the morality of the Bible, and say you need to live by this, this is the standard, we're not really changing people's hearts. We're not really changing people. Really all they're hearing is that Christianity is about different rules and systems and structures that I've got to follow and I've already got a bunch of rules, systems, and structures in my life that are working fine for me. I don't need God. If, that's, if God is what you just described, then I don't need God. When in reality, first and foremost, what people need more than anything is Jesus. If something's out of whack in their life, they don't need to somehow get things back in place first. What they need is Jesus. They need to get to Jesus. 
If someone's sinning, what they need is to learn how to get back to Jesus because Jesus will make the rest right. You center Jesus there in the place where he's supposed to be, and then he will order their life. The goal of it is to get Jesus to be the center of your system. Everything else will balance itself out in the proper order. But until Jesus is in the proper central place where he should be, all we're simply doing is a juggling act of different morals and rules and regulations to try to live by. And that's exhausting. And it doesn't help. So Paul's going to say, first and foremost, the people that need to be brought into awareness of sin or of their transgression, first and foremost, are brothers. These are people that are Christians, people that are in the faith, people that are following God already. The second question is this, is when is someone to be restored? This is going to be a funny one because a lot of times when we think about people that sin, people that are in transgression, brothers or sisters, Christians, we oftentimes think every time they do something that annoys me, I need to tell them. All right. I mean, we even have a segment of the Christian church, for the most part, that kind of view themselves as like gospel detectives. They're like, look, I've just appointed myself to be the one that's going to snoop out every error and sin in your life and every theological, you know, problematic way that you have in your life. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And these people oftentimes see themselves as watchmen, as truth proclaimers and people that are always trying to do good. But the reality is, listen carefully what Paul is going to say. He's not going to say the people that are going to be doing this confronting, are not, they're not to do it every time they see something that annoys them, that makes them angry, that frustrates them. Here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, anyone who is caught in a transgression. This word caught basically means you're stuck. You're in a cul-de-sac. You're in a treadmill. You can't get off this thing. You're in a cycle. You don't know how to free yourself. You're stuck. You just keep going around and around on the cycle, and you don't know how to get off. You don't know how to exit. There's something that's got you there, and you're trapped. You don't know how to move beyond it. This is the type of people to whom Paul's saying, look, you, you need to look for these elements of trapping. Because let me put it this way. All of us, if it's true that we are part of a family, like I said, and the family that we're part of will wound and heal throughout our lives. And if it's true that this family that we're a part of is literally a collection of sinners saved by grace, that means simultaneously every time we gather, every time there will be people here that are trapped in some sort of sin. It means right now, some of you, good portion of some of you right now would look at your life and say, I'm on on that cul-de-sac. I'm running that treadmill right now. I don't know how to get off. I'm stuck. So the issue is this. Some of us know those things. So in other words, if you got a sin in your life and you're aware of it and you like bring it to your prayer partners, you know, you got in a, you know, some sort of accountability group and you're talking to them or like, look, I got this issue I'm going through. I need help. Please be praying for me. Please hold me accountable to these things. And you guys are regularly talking about it. You brought your sin to light. You are very well aware of what the sin is. Um, Let me just say this. You're in a really good place. That's a great place to be. If that's you, and you brought your sin to light, and you're living in the awareness of it, even though that you're still struggling with it, even though there's going to be those periodic occasions where you're going to feel really bad about it, and you're going to be struggling with, you know, the sense of, like, confidence and whatnot, but you keep bringing that to light, that's a really good thing. It's a great place to be. 
But if you're the type of person that's just like, you're living in some sort of sin, you're not aware of it, other people around you, they're well aware of it. They see it, they see these things in your life, and they're like, ah, this is not good. And the reality is, is that no one maybe has never said anything to you about it, but the fact of the matter is, is you're not really well aware of it. What you need is somebody who loves you, who's going to come to you and try to bring some sort of awareness to you about these things. Let me give you a couple examples of what I mean uh, by someone who's caught. I think there's at least two things that we can look at. One, someone who's caught is someone who I would say we see some sort of pattern of repetition. In other words, they keep doing it constantly over and over again. Not just like sin once, they failed once, they did one dumb thing, or they lost their temper once. I mean, you know, obviously, we're all going to lose our temper. I mean, it, we're all going to have some sort of thing that we're going to do that we wish we didn't do. But if you see that as a regular, constant, habitual action on a regular basis, and there's no breaking it, there's no acknowledging it, there's no turning from it, then this is, this is someone who's caught. Uh, I think being caught also implies a blindness, meaning you may not even be aware of it. Look, oftentimes some of the sins that oftentimes are the ones that we really need to be worried about are the ones that we don't know about, but other people are well aware of. We all got blind spots. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm married, and I've been married for 20 years, and my, my wife's my best friend. And, and you know you have a wife who's your best friend who can actually tell you, look, you've got these things in your life that are just bad. They're putrefying. They're not good. They're offensive to me. I know they're offensive to God. You got to deal with them. For me to be able to hear those things, because I got these blind spots I don't see. I'm not perfect. I struggle. I've got issues of sin. I'm very thankful to have a wife that's able to speak those things to me. I was talking to a guy a few weeks ago, and he was saying that, you know, I was asking him how he came back to Jesus. And he told me, he says, uh, he had some friends. And he, when he came to school, he just kind of got caught up in the whole party scene. He was getting drunk all the time. And he was constantly just partying. And he says, one night he got so drunk, the next day a couple of his buddies took him out to breakfast. And they're just like, sat him down. like, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? I mean, you were so drunk last night. You, you, I mean, you could have passed out and died. And I'm worried about you. I'm really worried about you. More importantly, Jesus is worried about you. And, and he said, that was the turning point in my life. And I told him, I says, what an amazing group of friends you have. And he says, I, I owe him everything. They took the time to tell me something that I, I was doing. I didn't even know it. I was just caught up in the cycle. I wasn't even aware of it. I was blind was the word he actually used. I was blind. So the issue is not just finding somebody who just sins once, does something stupid, or says something that's wrong once in a while, and then you just kind of tackle them, and you're like, what are you doing? I'm the gospel tackler. I'm the gospel detective. I'm the gospel police. Who put the badge in you? I did. I voted by myself. I think I'm qualified. That's not your job. I mean, but if you see someone who's stuck, who's caught, and you go to them, you confront them, you bring it to them. That's the way this works out. Let me tell you, say one more thing about blindness. Another way to identify blindness is this. I was talking with someone earlier this past week, and they were talking about how they had a relative in which they were trying to share the gospel with. They're not sure if they're a Christian, but they've been living in sin. And they asked me, you know, how do I approach this person? How do I bring to them their sin? I feel like one time I brought their sin to them, and they just got very offensive. And next time I went back, and they were just shunning me and turning their back on me and very frustrated with me. And I says, look, I think what you need to first of all do is rather than trying to keep pushing the sin issue on them, you need to really try to discern where are they at with Jesus? Do they find Jesus beautiful? That's where you need to start. 
Is Jesus beautiful to them? Do they love Jesus? Do they see Jesus as beauty, the embodiment of beauty? Because if they do, then that means that they're a Christian, and that means that their sin that they're stuck in will need to be uh, confronted and sometimes, you know, again, sometimes when people might confront somebody and they might get really frustrated and they might come off very defensive. And uh, sometimes, you know, again, people that are really quick to kind of pull the trigger, they're like, see, I knew they weren't a Christian. They got defensive. Look, I mean, don't we get defensive sometimes? I mean, we all get defensive. Nobody likes having stuff brought up to us. But the reality is, is that a true believer, once they're confronted, Usually, you know, it just might take a couple days for it to sink in, for them to begin to realize, you know what, you're right. I wasn't aware of this. I did something I shouldn't have been doing. I was saying something I should have been saying. I was acting a particular way that I should have been acting. You're right. I need to figure out how to change. That blindness will actually give way to light, okay? And that light, ironically enough, came through obedient believers who are willing to go out of their way and to try to communicate and convey these types of things. So the third thing is this. Who are the ones that are to, to be doing the restoring, the restoring? Who are the ones that are to be doing this restoring? Uh, verse 1 again says this. You who are spiritual, okay? The big word, you who are spiritual. Now, if you're like me, brought up in a church. I, actually, I wasn't brought up in a church. I could say I was around 16 years old. But from that time on, I was brought up in the church, and I heard teachings and heard things, and I came to some conclusions, not necessarily that were necessarily taught to me, but things that I kind of made, maybe came to conclusions on my own. I look back now, years later, and I just, I, I feel they were obviously very wrong. This is one of those verses, because I remember hearing this and thinking, okay, those who are spiritual are the ones to be doing the confronting. They're the ones that, so in other words, I had this idea in my mind, and if you have this idea in your mind, uh, you're on my team, because you're just like me, and you had this idea, that there were sort of like this, uh, two different types of groups or different, two different groups of Christians. There were the, uh, you know, subpar guys, junior varsity, all right, and then you had varsity, and these are the spiritual ones. These are the ones with, you know, the patch on the shoulder, the cape. Uh, they're the ones that, they're, they're, they're the, you know, the super spiritual ones. They're the ones that are qualified. You know, they went to the conference. They did the right thing. They say the right things. They're the ones that have devotions every morning. They pray the prayers. They help out, set up at church. They've got the Christian t-shirt. They have a Christian mug that has, you know, a scripture on it. They do the Christian things, all right, they're, they're the ones that are spiritual. But then there's a sort of subpar group of people. Uh, and maybe we've, again, we've even sort of made up doctrines with this. And again, it's not biblical, but we've created sort of this distinction that there are spiritual Christians, varsity, and then there are the unspiritual Christians. And we'll call these guys carnal Christians. They're the ones that aren't doing so hot. They're not praying very well. They're constantly backsliding, constantly sinning. They say bad they have bad language. They, you know, watch nasty movies. They maybe even smoke because, you know, you can't be a Christian and smoke. And, you know, if you smoke, then you're just a carnal Christian. You might even go to hell, all right? And, and that's the mentality, all right? That's the idea, all right? I'm not saying that. It's the idea. But the point that I would make is this. When Paul talks about carnality or carnal Christians or writing to you as carnal, what Paul is not saying there's two classifications of Christians, spiritual and carnal. Paul's saying, I'm writing to the carnal people because you guys aren't spiritual yet. I want to see you become spiritual. What Paul is saying is that all of you are spiritual. What he means by that, quite simply, is this. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God has taken up residency in your heart. You're spiritual. The Spirit is in you. He's in you. Those who live with the awareness and the in accordance to that, and live out 
from the new hearts and desire that the Spirit's birthed within you is, are, are living in obedience. We would call that, let's just say, ah, normal Christianity, all right? That's just normal Christianity. Then there's this other group of people that even though they're spiritual, they still act like the way they used to live. Those are the people that Paul would say, I had to treat you as if you were carnal. You're not carnal. You're spiritual, but you're acting like you're carnal. Look, there's something absolutely natural and beautiful about looking at a child who breastfeeds. There's something about that. I mean, for some people, it kind of creeps them out. But for the others, I mean, I got two daughters. There's something beautiful about that. It's, just, it's natural. It's something that God created. It's designed. It's glorious to see a little child doing that. There's something beautiful about that. But there's something when a 22-year-old breastfeeds that is just simply straight up wrong. It might even be illegal, all right? The point of the matter is, Kids, people, when they grow up, they should not still be feeding like that, all right? The point of the matter is this, is that Paul anticipates desires for us to grow up in our faith, trusting God, loving God, living according to the Spirit's work in our hearts and our lives. So the point that I would make is this, and when Paul writes, you are a spiritual resource as one in spirit of meekness, here's what he's saying. If you're a Christian, you're the spiritual ones. Spirit is at work in you. You may not be aware of it all the time. You may not sense it all the time. And you may not even be actually living in accordance to it. But you are spiritual. He's at work inside your life. There's not substandard Christians and then higher level Christians, higher life Christians, deeper Christians, Christians that are just living on this varsity level, that they're the ones that get the patches on their shirts. They're the ones that get brownie points. They're the ones that advance. Paul is saying that, look, all of you, there's one level. And it's the spirit of God resides in every single one who calls upon the name of Jesus. So what that means is this, is that if that's true, then all of us have this obligation to help other people that are caught in sin. Oftentimes we find ourselves in this place where we're like, ah, I'm not the type of person that likes to bring attention to someone else's sin. Isn't that not loving? And the reality what Paul's going to say is, listen, if you don't bring attention to someone's sin, that's not loving. Because if you love somebody, you don't want to see sin in the midst of their life or in the midst of a church. Sin actually destroys, it confines, it reduces, it shrinks, it removes joy. And God created a community so that the community of saints would be full of joy, full of life, full of freedom. The things that quench freedom and joy is sin. Sin. And if we're a community of people that are passionate about Jesus and passionate about God's desire for the community, we've got to care about sin. But again, we've got to learn how to discern between just simply being full of frustration with other people that do things that annoy us and feel like we've got to constantly just be hammering other people that we don't like. That's sinful. And learning how to carefully, lovingly bring awareness to someone's sin that they're trapped in. That's what Paul's saying. So, the ones that are to do the restoring, like Paul says, are the ones who are spiritual. Any Christian, anybody who follows Christ. The fourth thing is this. How are we to restore? How are we to restore? There's two things that Paul's going to write about and talk about. The first of which is with this attitude of gentleness. Restore such a brother or sister in an attitude or spirit of gentleness. This is the same word that he used 
earlier when he talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is meekness or gentleness. It's the same word. And it's this idea of learning how to control yourself, meaning you are able to be gentle. You're able to control your strengths or your aggression or your frustration and actually come across in a very loving manner. It's really the idea of embodying love to somebody. The flip side of this that Paul's going to talk about is also having an attitude of humility in light of truth. So here's what Paul's going to say. Take a look at the verse. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This idea of keeping watch on yourself is the idea of comparing yourself with the standard of God's word. That's how you keep watch. In other words, align yourself up according to the standard of God's word. So whatever that truth is, the word of God as truth, as the straight edge, line yourself up to that. One of the things you'll begin to realize is that the very sins that have plagued your brother or sister that they're caught in are the very sins that you, if you're not careful, you can get caught up in as well. So therefore, in light of that truth, you ought to be humble. So you have love and humility, love and truth actually coming together to bring about restoration. This is really important because oftentimes we have this tendency where we either go to one or the other. We either have this mentality of love, like I just want to be alongside people that are hurting and suffering. I'll hang out with them, I'll talk to them, maybe commiserate with them a little bit, kind of share some of my own struggles and hardships and stories with them just to make them feel a little bit better about their circumstances and their situation. But when it comes to actually bringing truth into that situation, we think, ah, the sharp edge of truth, I don't really want to do that because I might offend them. So I'll just commiserate with them, I'll hang out with them, I'll be gentle with them, I'll show love to them. But in reality, what you need to understand is that love without truth really is actually not loving. It's really not a loving action. The flip side of it is there are those people that are all about truth, all right? These are the ones that usually get the majority of the publicity. These are the ones that are like, it's all about the truth, man, the word of God, truth. To shove it down people's throat, force it down them, make sure they understand that God's holy and he hates sin and he may even hate you if you're not careful, all right? It's the mentality. I'm going to preach truth. I'm going to shove it down your throat no matter what. There's not a lot of, gentle, there's not a lot of gentleness and love in that. In fact, it's not even really being honest with the truth because that's not how God acts. So what you actually need is both. You need truth but this humility that goes along with the awareness of truth, but you also need this gentleness, this love that combines, moves together. And the beauty is that this is who Jesus is. This is verse in Isaiah where it talks about Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus comes and not even a bruised reed, he won't break. And a smoking flax or a candle that's barely flickering, he won't come and just snuff it out. But the flip side of all this, it says that Jesus is also going to bring judgment or justice. The idea is that Jesus is the embodiment of perfect gentleness and love and truth and humility. All of these two things coming together in a way to help us to bring about an awareness of the sins that need to be dealt with. This is the way that we need to be able to see these things. Pride is not good. In fact, C.S. Lewis is going to say this. I'm going to read you a quote. This is out of uh, Mere Christianity. It's a great quote. I'll just read it. He says this, how is it that people who are obviously eaten up with pride say they believe in God and appear to themselves to be very religious? 
which is I'm afraid, it means that they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks that they are far, uh, that they are far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny's worth of imaginary humility to him, to God, in order to get a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow man. I suppose it was... I suppose it was of these people that Christ was thinking when he, said, when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that they had never known them, that he had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Here's a test. Whenever we find ourselves, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good and are better than someone else, I think that we may be sure that we are acting on, that we are being acted on, not by God, by the devil. So good. The point that C.S. Lewis is trying to convey is exactly what Paul is trying to say, that if we go into situations and we look at people with this sort of uh, condemnatory type of a fashion, where we judge other people, you know, it's kind of this irony of what happens in our lives. I mean, you can be the type of person that God delivers, say, from smoking. You're like, you've been praying for years. God, deliver me from smoking. God delivers you. And now you look at other people that smoke and you think, what a fool. How can they do that? How can they do such a horrible, evil thing? And there's this real lack of humility. And the reality is, that was you. You were there. That was your life. That's how you lived. You think that you were actually delivered by your goodness? It was God's goodness. God saved you. God set you free. You have no leg of pride to stand on. This was all God. You got to give him the glory and have some humility when you see other people caught in sin. This is the point. This is why Paul is trying to really deal with this and say, because as a faith community, we will sin. We will wound each other. We will be hurt, but we will also be, we must be a part of that healing process. And the reason for that is, is because this is how God dealt with us. This is one of the reasons why this whole book is about justification by faith faith or by grace, that God by grace alone saved us. That means that you and I, we have nothing of which to boast in. One of the reasons why people become prideful is really at the end of the day is they have misunderstood theoretically and then practically the basis by which they've been made right with God. In other words, if you think that you're made right with God by how righteous you are, by how good you act, you know what you will do? That will be the lens by which you view everybody else and you will judge them. If you think that you are saved by good theology, then you will nitpick everybody else who has different nuanced ideas about theology than you. You will judge them, you will condemn them, you will attack them, and you will critique them. But if you view yourself as being justified by grace, then that becomes the lens by which you see everybody else. You, see, you actually begin to see other people with grace. You think, gosh, I, I was just as bad as they were, and yet God loved me. God saved me. I was a heretic, and God saved me. I was a sinner, and God saved me. I was religious and prideful and arrogant, and God saved me. Therefore, Anybody else who's in the same shoes that I used to be, God can and will and wants to save them too. They're just as bad as I was. So therefore, you can't have a swagger when you go and you try to confront somebody on sin. It's completely the opposite. Let me put it this way. 
if you had sin in your life and if you were the person caught in some sort of transgression and sin, how would you want somebody to pull you aside? I mean, would you want someone to write this long five-page letter? You're an idiot. I hate you. And your mom feels the same way too. All right? All right? We're all, we're all ganged up against you because you make us all mad because you constantly do these horrible things and we're putting our foot down because we're the righteous ones. You're not. We just want to make sure you know that. God bless you. We love you. You're like, really? This is horrible. I mean, if you have sin in your life, Trust me, you do. We all do. Some of you are aware of it. Some of you aren't so aware of it. But if somebody needs to come to you to remind you of those things, how would you want them to do it? With gentleness and humility. The final thing is this. What is restoration? And I finished with this whole thought. At the end of the day, what is Restoration. The word restoration is kind of a really amazing word. It's used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. One of the ways that I love the way it's used is actually has nothing to do with salvation of a soul. It has to do with the salvation of a broken net. And it's actually found in the book of Matthew chapter 4 where it says these fishermen were sitting on the seashore mending their nets. It's the same word, restore. They were restoring their nets. Oftentimes, we have this tendency to look at sin and I think ways that are not always accurate with the Bible. One of the ways in which we do this is we oftentimes have this tendency to look at sin as being a foreign object that comes comes into our body or comes into the body of believers that doesn't belong there like a piece of glass you step on it that somebody needs to pull or yank that piece of glass out and get rid of it because it's bloody and it's making a mess and we don't want to have messes in here so let's get rid of the mess and get rid of the glass and get rid of this foreign object because it's causing all sorts of great trauma and difficulty but in reality the bible is going to identify sin is not being preeminently a foreign object that has somehow caused major havoc. But in reality, sin, if you look in the Bible, more so has to do with not a foreign object causing trauma to a body, but more so as a bone that's part of the body that's out of joint. This is really important to note this. Because one of the things you'll identify in the Bible, that the majority of things the Bible is going to talk about that are sin, are actually good things that belong in the body. They belong in our lives. In other words, they're gifts from God. They're good things from God that God gifts to us as image bearers. I'll give you a couple examples. Sex, it's a great thing. God gave it. He says, I want you to multiply and procreate. And in doing that, I'm gonna give it Give you guys an amazing gift so that you will find incredible enjoyment, husband and wife, as they procreate in covenant with each other, and as they will enjoy sex with each other in that context, they will make lots of babies, and they will populate the earth and make it beautiful. But what happens is when we take sin and we rip it from its context, rip it from what it was intended to do, and we say, I don't want sex in covenant, in marriage. I want sex out of covenant, out of marriage, in a way that has nothing to do with how God designed it. That's equivalent to a bone being ripped out of socket. Food. It's a great thing. It's a godly thing. Heaven's going to be full of it. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, I can't wait for the day when we're going to feast in heaven. 
It will be phenomenal. I can't wait. I hope there's bacon. But that being said, one of these days in heaven, we will be with Jesus and food's a good thing. Food is a gift from God. But if you take food that's a good thing, gifted to us by God, to become a means of worship and praise and adoration to him, and we terminate it in and of itself or on itself, and we become the end of it, we have this inordinate, disproportionate love affair with food, then you become a glutton. You gain weight, you live an unhealthy life, your body begins to disintegrate. You break down. Heart attack, diabetes, all sorts of health-related disease. Why? Because that's not how food was intended to be used. It's a bone that's out of socket. Alcohol, gift from God. First miracle Jesus does, creates water into wine. It's a gift from God. He even talks about in the kingdom to come. I won't even drink of the fruit of the vine until one day in heaven. There will be wine in heaven. It will be redeemed fully. If you take this good thing that God gave and says, enjoy it, worship me as you drink it. When you drink it, think of the fact that my blood is like wine that's poured out. Remember the cross. But if we abuse it, we say, I don't want to remember the cross. I don't want to do anything. I just want to drink a whole bottle and get slammed then you will oftentimes, can oftentimes, put yourself into some sort of destructive behavioral patterns that is like a bone being out of socket. That's what sin is. It's good things given to us by God that are misused and abused. And rather than building up and bringing wholeness and bringing joy, deep joy, that bring about a life that's out of control, out of whack, that needs to be repaired, that needs to be restored. In the beginning, God created all things. It was good. He puts his announcement over all things and says, all things are good. I created it. His stamp of approval of his, is on all things. Man, rather than choosing to walk in harmony and symmetry and rhythm with God, chooses to sin and abuse the things that God gave him for good. And as a result of that, the fall brought sin into this world, a disintegration of all things. Next thing, God immediately comes on a scene and makes his promise. He says, I will redeem all things. And the way that I will redeem all things is I will bring about a promised Messiah who will set things right. And then the final thing that God is doing is the restoration. So we have creation, the fall, the redemption, and then finally the restoration. That God is in the business of actually restoring people's lives that are out of joint that's what sin does this is one reason if i would even go so far as to say why god is so deeply troubled by sin is because sin takes image bearers made in god's unique characteristic image intended to reflect back to the world around us his glory his preeminence his beauty and simultaneously enjoy deep satisfaction in our creator and it shatters it. That's what sin does. It shatters the beauty of God's that's to be seen in his image bearers. By taking our bones and pulling them out of joint, we suffer. People around us suffer. And what Paul is saying is that if you know anybody who's trapped in a sin, who has bones out of joint, and maybe they're not aware of it, maybe they are aware of it, Paul says, you who are Christians, help them. If you see them suffering, help them. 
See, our tendency so oftentimes is to say, let's oppress them and crush them and bruise them. Isn't that the way the church oftentimes operates with sin? We see people sinning. We want to crush them. But what Paul's going to say, you don't need to crush them. And the reason why you don't need to crush them, why you don't need to oppress them, why you don't need to bruise them, is because what God did through Jesus is God sent Jesus, and Jesus was crushed by the Father. Jesus was bruised by the Father. Jesus was afflicted and oppressed by the Father, by our sin, our sin that was laid upon him, and therefore creating a way whereby we can be set free. Our job as image bearers in the church, in a family that wounds us, that also brings about healing. It's to not to snoop out sin as if we're busybodies. But if we are made aware of people that are in our family that are hurting or have been hurt, that are trapped, stuck, have a bone that's out of joint, we go to them and we help them. Isn't that a community you want to be a part of? Isn't it? Nobody wants to be a part of a community that's like people who sin, we blog about them. We excommunicate them. We hate on them. See, some people might be like, well, isn't there a place for biblical discipline? Absolutely. If a person's not wanting to repent, you actually got to put them outside of the community because that person is causing a problem that's actually being destructive to the shalom and the peace in the community. And the point of the matter is, is you want them to learn that God wants to heal them. Again, it's not an issue of sin primarily. It's an issue of Jesus primarily. Where's Jesus at? Jesus is our peace. He's our shalom. Once they recognize their desperate need for Jesus, man, you welcome them back with open arms, back into the group. That's the group I want to be a part of. The one that people get my back. They see things in my life that I'm not doing properly. I want to know what those things are. We should be careful to try to live in that community. That's what the gospel does to us. It helps us in that. I want to finish up right now. What I want to do is I'm going to have the guys come up and they're going to get ready to lead worship. But what I want to do before we even do that, I want to make sure that we don't miss the opportunity to respond to this. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to just kind of talk about, you know, how to restore people and people that are wounded and trapped and stuck and just be like, all right, let's sing some songs about Jesus and blah, 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 and leave. You know, I want to make sure that we actually live this stuff out. And that basically boils down to this. It means that if you're here tonight and you look at your life and you feel that there's areas, maybe by the Spirit of God tonight revealing them to, that you're trapped, you're stuck, you're in this cul-de-sac, you're caught. You're caught in some sort of sin. Maybe you're caught in some sort of sin that is just difficult, it's hard, whatever it might be. Maybe you're caught in some sort of sin of pride where you're the type of person that is just looking at everybody else condescendingly. You got the worst sin of all, if I can just be so humble. I'm not humble, but if I can just be so honest, that's the worst sin of all, pride. I mean, if you're looking at someone and being like, you shouldn't be smoking. <laughs> really? Well, you're arrogant, man. That's like worse than smoking. I mean, like, pride got Satan kicked out of heaven, not smoking a cigarette. I mean, it's like, I mean, let's just, let's just try to, you know, look at things in a proportionate fashion here. I mean, it's like, pride's bad. Okay. And if you're caught in something like that, God wants to deliver you. So if that's you, if there's something that you feel that you're caught in, it might be even a relationship, you're caught in something in that relationship, you're not working through things properly, and you need help, if that's you, just stand up where you're at. Just stand up where you're at. We just want to pray for you. That's all we're going to do. Anybody else, just stand up. 
This is not about, you know, eyes being fixed on you. Why don't we turn the lights on too, anyhow? So just to prove to you guys, this is not about us trying to look at you. This is about us just basically being able to say, if you're here, you feel as if you're caught in something, and you just need help, you need prayer, you need someone to be around you and support you, this is the family, I and mean, this is the safe place to do it. There's no judgment, no criticism. If that's you, anything that's going on in your life, you just need prayer for it. Just stand up where you're at. You just feel caught in something. It's cool. Good. Good job, guys. It's hard doing that sometimes. There's nothing magic about standing up, but I'll tell you, you know, there's just something freeing about standing up, freeing to just be able to say, look, I admit it. I need help. I just need help. If that's you, just stand up where you're at.